Section 17 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one f section seventeen chapter sixty six part two every step taken by the commons discovered that ill-humour and jealousy to which the late open measures of the king and his present secret attachments gave but too just foundation they drew up a new bill against popery and resolved to insert it in many severe clauses for the detection and prosecution of priests they presented addresses a second time against Lauderdale, and when the king's answer was not satisfactory, they seemed still determined to persevere in their applications. An accusation was moved against Danby, but upon examining the several articles, it was not found to contain any just reasons of a prosecution, and was therefore dropped. They applied to the king for recalling his troops from the French service, and as he only promised that they should not be recruited they appeared to be much dissatisfied with the answer a bill was brought in making it treason to levy money without authority of parliament another vacating the seats of such members as accepted of offices another to secure the personal liberty of the subject and to prevent sending any person prisoner beyond sea that the court party might not be idle during these attacks a bill for a new test was introduced into the house of peers by the earl of lindesey all members of either house and all who possessed any office were by this bill required to swear that it was not lawful upon any pretence whatsoever to take arms against the king that they abhorred the traitorous position of taking arms by his authority against his person or against those who were commissioned by him and that they will not at any time endeavor the alteration of the protestant religion or of the established government either in church or state great opposition was made to this bill as might be expected from the present disposition of the nation during seventeen days the debates were carried on with much zeal and all the reason and learning of both parties were displayed on the occasion the question indeed with regard to resistance was a point which entered into the controversies of the old parties cavalier and roundhead as it made an essential part of the present disputes between court and country few neuters were found in the nation but among such as could maintain a calm indifference there prevailed sentiments wide of those who were adopted by either party such persons thought that all general speculative declarations of the legislature either for or against resistance were equally impolitic and could serve to no other purpose than to signalize in their turn the triumph of one faction over another that the simplicity retained in the ancient laws of england as well as in the laws of every other country ought still to be preserved and was best calculated to prevent the extremes on either side that the absolute exclusion of resistance in all possible cases was founded on false principles 
its express admission might be attended with dangerous consequences, and there was no necessity for exposing the public to either inconvenience. That if a choice must necessarily be made in the case, the preference of utility to truth in public institutions was apparent, nor could the supposition of resistance, beforehand and in general terms, be safely admitted in any government. That even in mixed monarchies, where that supposition seemed most requisite, it was yet entirely superfluous, since no man, on the approach of extraordinary necessity, could be at a loss, though not directed by legal declarations, to find the proper remedy. That even those who might, at a distance, and by scholastic reasoning, exclude all resistance, would yet hearken to the voice of nature, when evident ruin, both to themselves and to the public, must attend a strict adherence to their pretended principles. That the question, as it ought thus to be entirely excluded from all determinations of the legislature, was, even among private reasoners, somewhat frivolous, and little better than a dispute of words. That the one party could not pretend that resistance ought ever to become a familiar practice. The other would surely have recourse to it in great extremities. And thus the difference could only turn on the degrees of danger or oppression which would warrant this irregular remedy, a difference which, in a general question, it was impossible by any language precisely to fix or determine. There were many other absurdities in this test, particularly that of binding men by oath not to alter the government either in church or state, since all human institutions are liable to abuse and require continual amendments, which are in reality so many alterations. It is not, indeed, possible to make a law which does not innovate, more or less, in the government. These difficulties produced such obstructions to the bill that it was carried only by two voices in the House of Peers. All the popish lords, headed by the Earl of Bristol, voted against it. It was sent down to the House of Commons, where it was likely to undergo a scrutiny still more severe. But a quarrel which ensued between the two houses prevented the passing of every bill projected during the present session. One, Dr. Shirley, being cast in a lawsuit before Chancery against Sir John Fagg, a member of the House of Commons, preferred a petition of appeal to the House of Peers. The Lords received it, and summoned Fagg to appear before them. He complained to the lower house, who espoused his cause. They not only maintained that no member of their house could be summoned before the peers, they also asserted that the upper house could receive no appeals from any court of equity, a pretension which extremely retrenched the jurisdiction of the peers, and which was contrary to the practice that had prevailed during this whole century. The commons send surely to prison. The lords assert their powers. Conferences are tried, but no accommodation ensues. Four lawyers are sent to the tower by the commons, for transgressing the orders of the house, and pleading in this cause before the peers. The peers denominate this arbitrary commitment a breach of the great charter, and order the lieutenant of the tower to release the prisoners. He declines obedience. They apply to the king, and desire him to punish the lieutenant for his contempt. The king summons both houses, exhorts them to unanimity, 
and informs them that the present quarrel had arisen from the contrivance of his and their enemies, who expected by that means to force a dissolution of the Parliament. His advice has no effect. The commons continue as violent as ever, and the king, finding that no business could be finished, at last prorogued the Parliament. When the Parliament was again assembled, there appeared not in any respect a change in the dispositions of either house. The king desired supplies, as well for the building of ships, as for taking off anticipations which lay upon his revenue, he even confessed that he had not been altogether so frugal as he might have been, and as he resolved to be for the future. Though he asserted that, to his great satisfaction, he had found his expenses by no means so exorbitant as some had represented them. The commons took into consideration the subject of supply. They voted three hundred thousand pounds for the building of ships, but they appropriated the sum by very strict clauses. They passed a resolution not to grant any supply for taking off the anticipations of the revenue. This vote was carried in a full house, by a majority of four only. So nearly were the parties balanced. The quarrel was revived, to which Dr. Shirley's cause had given occasion. The proceedings of the Commons discovered the same violence as during the last session. A motion was made in the House of Peers, but rejected, for addressing the King to dissolve the present Parliament. The king contented himself with proroguing them to a very long term. Whether these quarrels between the houses arose from contrivance or accident was not certainly known. Each party might, according to their different views, esteem themselves either gainers or losers by them. The court might desire to obstruct all attacks from the commons by giving them other employment. The country party might desire the dissolution of a parliament which, notwithstanding all disgust, still contained too many royalists ever to serve all the purposes of the malcontents. Soon after the prorogation there passed an incident which in itself is trivial, but tends strongly to mark the genius of the English government and of Charles's administration during this period. The liberty of the Constitution, and the variety as well as violence of the parties, had begotten a propensity for political conversation, and as the coffee-houses in particular were the scenes where the conduct of the king and the ministry was canvassed with great freedom, a proclamation was issued to suppress these places of rendezvous. Such an act of power, during former reigns, would have been grounded entirely on the prerogative, and before the accession of the House of Stuart, no scruple would have been entertained with regard to that exercise of authority. But Charles, finding doubts to arise upon his proclamation, had recourse to the judges, who supplied him with a chicane, and that to a frivolous one, by which he might justify his proceedings. The law which settled the excise enacted, that licenses for retailing liquors might be refused to such as could not find security for payment of the duties but coffee was not a liquor subjected to excise. And even this power of refusing licenses was very limited, and could not reasonably be extended beyond the intention of the act. The king, therefore, observing the people to be much dissatisfied, yielded to a petition of the coffee-men, 
who promised for the future to restrain all seditious discourse in their houses, and the proclamation was recalled. This campaign proved more fortunate to the Confederates than any other during the whole war. The French took the field in Flanders with a numerous army, and Lewis himself served as a volunteer under the Prince of Kund. But notwithstanding his great preparations, he could gain no advantages but the taking of Huy and Limburg, places of small consequence. The Prince of Orange, with a considerable army, opposed him in all his motions, and neither side was willing, without a visible advantage, to hazard a general action, which might be attended either with the loss of Flanders on the one hand, or the invasion of France on the other. Lewis, tired of so inactive a campaign, returned to Versailles and the whole summer passed in the Low Countries without any memorable event. Turin commanded on the Upper Rhine, in opposition to his great rival, Montecuculli, general of the imperialists. The object of the latter was to pass the Rhine, to penetrate into Alsace, Lorraine, or Burgundy, and to fix his quarters in these provinces. The aim of the former was to guard the French frontiers, and to disappoint all the schemes of his enemy. The most consummate skill was displayed on both sides, and if any superiority appeared in Turin's conduct, it was chiefly ascribed to his greater vigor of body, by which he was enabled to inspect all the posts in person, and could on the spot take the justest measures for the execution of his designs. By posting himself on the German side of the Rhine, he not only kept Montecuculli from passing that river, he had also laid his plan in so masterly a manner that in a few days he must have obliged the Germans to decamp, and have gained a considerable advantage over them, when a period was put to his life by a random shot, which struck him on the breast as he was taking a view of the enemy. The consternation of his army was inexpressible. The French troops, who a moment before were assured of victory, now considered themselves as entirely vanquished, and the Germans, who would have been glad to compound for a retreat, expected no less than the total destruction of their enemy. But Delorge, nephew to Turin, succeeded him in the command, and possessed a great share of the genius and capacity of his predecessor. By his skilful operations the French were enabled to repass the Rhine, without considerable loss, and this retreat was deemed equally glorious with the greatest victory. The valor of the English troops, who were placed in the rear, greatly contributed to save the French army. They had been seized with the same passion as the native troops of France for their brave general, and fought with ardor to revenge his death on the Germans. The Duke of Marlborough, then Captain Churchill, here learned the rudiments of that art which he afterwards practised with such fatal success against France. The Prince of Kund left the army in Flanders under the command of Luxembourg, and carrying with him a considerable reinforcement, succeeded to Turenne's command. He defended Alsace from the Germans, who had passed the Rhine and invaded that province. He obliged them first to raise the siege at Hagenau, than that of Saberne. He eluded all their attempts to bring him to a battle, and having dexterously prevented them from establishing themselves in Alsace, 
he forced them notwithstanding their superiority of numbers to repass the rhine and to take up winter quarters in their own country after the death of turenne a detachment of the german army was sent to the siege of treves an enterprise in which the imperialists the spaniards the palatine the duke of lorraine and many other princes passionately concurred the project was well concerted and executed with vigor mariscal quecri on the other hand collected an army and advanced with the view of forcing the germans to raise the siege they left a detachment to guard their lines and under the command of the dukes of zell and osnaburg marched in quest of the enemy at consarbric they fell unexpectedly and with superior numbers on crequi and put him to rout he escaped with four attendants only and throwing himself into treves resolved by a vigorous defence to make atonement for his former error or misfortune the garrison was brave but not abandoned to that total despair by which their governor was actuated they mutinied against his obstinacy capitulated for themselves and because he refused to sign the capitulation they delivered him a prisoner into the hands of the enemy it is remarkable that this defeat given to crequi is almost the only one which the french received at land from rocroy to blenheim during the course of above sixty years and these too full of bloody wars against potent and martial enemies their victories almost equal the number of years during that period such was the vigor and good conduct of that monarchy and such too were the resources and refined policy of the other european nations by which they were enabled to repair their losses and still to confine that mighty power nearly within its ancient limits a fifth part of these victories would have sufficed in another period to have given to france the empire of europe the swedes had been engaged by the payment of large subsidies to take part with lewis and invade the territories of the elector of brandenburg in pomerania that elector joined by some imperialists from silesia fell upon them with bravery and success he soon obliged them to evacuate his part of that country and he pursued them into their own he had an interview with the king of denmark who had now joined the confederates and resolved to declare war against sweden these princes concerted measures for pushing the victory to all these misfortunes against foreign enemies were added some domestic insurrections of the common people in guienne and brittany though soon suppressed they divided the force and attention of lewis the only advantage gained by the french was at sea messina in sicily had revolted and a fleet under the duke of de vivon was dispatched to support the rebels the dutch had sent a squadron to assist the spaniards a battle ensued where de ruder was killed this event alone was thought equivalent to a victory the french who twelve years before had scarcely a ship of war in any of their harbours had raised themselves by means of perseverance and policy to be in their present force though not in their resources the first maritime power in europe the dutch while in alliance with them against england had supplied them with several vessels and had taught them the rudiments of the difficult art of shipbuilding 
the english next when in alliance with them against holland instructed them in the method of fighting their ships and of preserving order in naval engagements lewis availed himself of every opportunity to aggrandize his people while charles sunk in indolence and pleasure neglected all the noble arts of government or if at any time he aroused himself from his lethargy that industry by reason of the unhappy projects which he embraced was more often pernicious to the public than his inactivity itself he was as anxious to promote the naval power of france as if the safety of his crown had depended on it and many of the plans executed in that kingdom were first it is said digested and corrected by him the successes of the allies had been considerable the last campaign but the spaniards and imperialists well knew that france was not yet sufficiently broken nor willing to submit to the terms which they resolved to impose upon her though they could not refuse the king's mediation and nimeguen after many difficulties was at last fixed on as the place of congress yet under one pretence or another they still delayed sending their ambassadors and no progress was made in the negotiation lord berkeley sir william temple and sir lionel jenkins were the english ministers at nimeguen the dutch who were impatient for peace soon appeared lewis who hoped to divide the allies and who knew that he himself could neither be seduced nor forced into a disadvantageous peace sent ambassadors the swedes who hoped to recover by treaty what they had lost by arms were also forward to negotiate but as these powers could not proceed of themselves to settle terms the congress hitherto served merely as an amusement to the public end of section seventeen chapter sixty six part two recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com